I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Tracy, have you noticed we keep bumping up against Joseph Pulitzer? <laughs> yeah, his name just keeps <laughs> returning. Uh, I mean, that's normal because he's one of those pivotal figures in history. His influence continues right on through today, more than a century after his death. A lot of times, if you talk about history in the time he was alive, something is going to connect to one of his papers. Uh, And while he started out in pretty privileged circumstances, that did not last. And well before he was a famous name associated with journalism... He was an immigrant in the United States with no money. And today we're going to talk about his early life right up through his rivalry with William Randolph Hearst. But this is actually a two-parter, although each of these could more or less stand alone without too much confusion. Uh, And that's largely because there are two really big events that were pretty significant in his life and in the world of journalism, but that he wasn't around for. And we've kind of centered each episode around that to some degree. Uh, One of them will appear in this episode and the other in part two. But like I said, today, his birth through that Hearst situation. So Joseph Pulitzer was born in Mako, Hungary on April 10th, 1847 to Philip and Elise Pulitzer. The Pulitzers were pretty wealthy. Philip was from several generations of successful merchants, and Joseph and his siblings were educated in private schools. They had private tutors. When Joseph was eight, the family moved to Pest for better business opportunities, and they found them. Philip Pulitzer did just extremely well there. And though Joseph had impressive educational opportunities, he also had a bad temper. That made him a troublesome student. He loved to read, but he really hated the restrictions involved with formal schooling. Yeah, there's one story about him that I read in a biography that he was 
such a pain in the neck that he drove one of his tutors to jump out the window, which is presumably a first floor window. But he basically was like, I cannot wait to get to a door. I want away from this child. (laughs) But while he was still young, there were also some tragedies. Joseph lost several of his siblings. And then his father, Philip, died in 1858 at just the age of 47. So from the ages of 9 to 12, Joseph had lost five siblings and his father. And to make matters worse, his father's illness before he died had drained their savings, and his mother, Elise, did not really know how to manage the family's remaining money and didn't really have a vocation to make more. So they were soon broke. But things could have gotten really dire. But then Elise remarried to a man named Max Fry. At the age of 17, Pulitzer moved to the U.S. with the intention to serve in the U.S. Civil War, fighting for the Union. This was not his first effort at joining a military, according to some accounts. There are stories that he had tried to enlist in the Austrian army, but was refused due to poor health and bad eyesight. Undaunted, then he tried to enlist in the French Foreign Legion under Napoleon, which was recruiting for soldiers to go to Mexico. He ran into the same issue and was disqualified again because of his health. His next try was with the British Army, which needed men to serve in India, was not accepted there either. But then he met a bounty recruiter in Germany who was looking for recruits for the U.S. Union Army, and that's how Pulitzer found himself bound for Boston on a ship called the Garland. But Pulitzer had realized that bounty recruiters who were basically brokering the deals to recruit almost anybody were pocketing an outsized portion of the bounty payments. And in the case of this particular agent he was working with, he was procuring people to serve in lieu of wealthy young men who would otherwise be drafted. And Joseph allegedly tried to skirt this system by leaving the makeshift enlistment point the bounty hunters had set up on Deer Island. He instead made his way to shore by wading across a shallow channel, headed to New York. He wasn't, to be clear, trying to get out of service. He had, after all, been hunting for a military contract. But he got to a recruiting tent that had been hastily assembled in City Hall Park, and there he made a deal with a young man named Henry Vosberg, who was a farmer, to serve in his stead. And Pulitzer got paid $200 for this. He used some of the money to send his mother a gift to let her know he was doing well. Pulitzer had lied about his age to enlist. He said he was 20 when he was only 17, but he knew how to ride a horse, so he joined the Lincoln Cavalry. This was made up mostly of German soldiers, but he had trouble getting along with his fellow soldiers. They were not especially welcoming to bounty-hunted recruits, especially new bounty-hunted recruits. He served, though, and was honorably discharged at the war's conclusion. And when the war ended, Joseph looked for work in New York, but he found this to be a pretty fruitless effort because so many other soldiers, who, unlike him, could speak English, were doing exactly the same thing. After he finally received some money from back home, he used that to move to St. Louis, and there he started his career in journalism. He did not jump right into it, though. First, he did various low-level service jobs while he taught himself English from library books. And he also started studying law the same way during this time. And it was in the library in 1868 that he met two men who regularly played chess there. 
And not knowing who they were, Pulitzer made a comment about a mistake he felt that one of the players had made, and a conversation ensued. It turned out the two men were editors for the Westliche Post, and this was a German-language newspaper that catered to St. Louis's German-speaking community. They offered him a job working as a reporter, and he accepted. Pulitzer worked really hard as a journalist for this paper for several years. The thing that would really change his trajectory from employee to mogul was really a matter of chance. In 1872, the paper's owners were nearly bankrupt, and they offered Joseph Pulitzer the chance to purchase a controlling interest in the paper as they tried to bail themselves out. He took that chance, and that meant when he was only 25, he owned his first paper, and he could call himself not just a journalist, but a publisher. But then he sold the Westliche Post pretty quickly. He made money on that deal. And even before he had taken the Westliche Post job, Joseph had become a U.S. citizen, and his brother Albert had joined him. We'll probably talk a little bit more about Albert in the behind the scenes on Friday. And before he purchased that portion of the paper he was offered, Pulitzer had also become involved in the Missouri political scene through the paper's contacts. He was elected to the state legislature in 1869, in part because he was able to leverage the paper to support his campaign. He would continue to use his news organizations to promote the ideas and politicians and politics that he favored and to attack those that he did not. As the 1870s began, Pulitzer was a member of a group of people who wanted to reform the Republican Party. They felt like there was too much corruption in the administration of President Ulysses S. Grant, and that was something a lot of people agreed with. These reformers eventually founded the Liberal Republican Party. It was the Liberal Republican Party that nominated Horace Greeley for president in 1872. That campaign was disastrous, though, and likely led to Greeley's demise, and when the election was over, a really disheartened Pulitzer switched to the Democratic Party, and he remained there for the rest of his life. In the 1870s, Pulitzer flipped another German-language newspaper, once again in St. Louis. In 1874, he purchased Zeitung, which had mediocre subscriber numbers, but it was a member of the Associated Press. So Pulitzer sold that paper to the St. Louis Globe, and that meant that the Globe would get membership in the Associated Press, something its owners had wanted but had not been able to secure up to that point. This was a legal move, but it was also a legal move through a loophole, and it made some other St. Louis papers pretty angry. But it made Pulitzer between $11,000 and $20,000 profit. The exact number is unknown. But he added that to the money he had already made flipping the Weisslicher Post. His estimated ready capital at that point was somewhere between $30,000 and $40,000, and he started investing. He also returned to his law studies and passed the bar exam. Coming up, we'll talk about significant changes in Pulitzer's personal life and that first big event we mentioned at the top of the show. First, though, we will pause for a sponsor break. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. In 1878, Pulitzer had two pretty big events happen in his life, one professional and one personal. On the professional front, he made a much bigger move in the newspaper industry when he bought a controlling interest in the St. Louis Dispatch and then also acquired the St. Louis Post. And it was at that point that the two papers were merged into one entity, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which continues to exist today. And on a personal front, he married Catherine Davis, who went by Kate. When the two of them married, Pulitzer was 31 and Kate was 26. This was a match that would have been way out of Pulitzer's league socially only a few years earlier. Kate was from a prominent family from Washington, D.C. In one Pulitzer biography, her family was described as Southern landed gentry, although they didn't have the kind of wealth they once did. I'm taking this to a lot of places that just involve plantations in the aftermath of the Civil War. That is a fully fair place to take it. Uh, There was also a bit of deception in this match because Joseph wasn't entirely honest with Kate and her family about being Jewish. While her family had noted that Pulitzer looked Jewish, he had told them that his father was Jewish, but his mother was Catholic. And as Jewishness is considered to pass down maternally, this explained away any characteristics that would have been perceived as Jewish while still smoothing things out with Kate's Episcopalian parents. 
He was honest with her about who he was as a person, though. He told her plainly in letters that he was selfish and cold, and as they were planning their wedding and their honeymoon, he switched up the plan repeatedly, often because of his business interests. But Kate really rolled with this inconsistent behavior, and at one point he wrote to her, your pluck is really splendid. Which, that's a great description. Yeah. Yes, I made a note that in the outline that I want that on a shirt. Yeah. Uh, he also took off for New York just a few days before their wedding to see about a possible investment. He told her to always expect him to prioritize these kinds of opportunities. He made it back to St. Louis two days later than planned, and then the wedding finally happened. This is one of those big society events because between his business connections and her family connections, all the most powerful people in St. Louis were there. The newlyweds went to Europe for a two-month honeymoon, but Joseph was just continually distracted by ideas about work or politics. I feel like uh, he's not a person I would want to be married to, and it doesn't sound like they had the best marriage ever. Um but they did have seven children, Lucille, Ralph, Joseph Jr., Constance, Edith, Catherine, and Herbert. The Pulitzers were not exactly what you would call hands-on parents. As you may have expected from what Joseph said, he was gone a lot. They both sort of lived their lives, and they let a governess take care of the kids most of the time. Joseph didn't even meet some of his children until weeks after they were born. Catherine died when she was still a toddler, and their daughter Lucy died at the age of 17 after contracting typhoid, which was a really awful experience for everyone. For the next four years after getting married, Pulitzer ran the Post-Dispatch and dominated the news market in St. Louis. He worked just nonstop, constantly at his desk, managing the paper right down to the minutia, often working long hours to the exclusion of any other pursuit. So he just, he had no concept of work-life balance. One of the ways he grew readership was by positioning the Post-Dispatch as the paper of the people and focusing on investigative journalism. Pulitzer's writers chased down every story of corruption that they got even the faintest lead on, and that really became the paper's identity, This also drove up readership numbers significantly, and what had been a lagging paper on shaky financial ground really grew into a successful business. But then in 1882, some events unfolded that made St. Louis less hospitable to Pulitzer. And we're actually going to veer away from Joseph Pulitzer's story here to tell this one, because while there are plenty of very short mentions of it, in accounts of Pulitzer's life. It's something that was a very big deal at the time, certainly a huge deal in St. Louis, and it changed the trajectory of his business dealings, even though he wasn't directly involved. I was really not prepared for the direction this is about to go. (laughs) Me either when I found it. I read one line about it in a biography and went, wait, wait, what? What happened? And then I kept digging and it became huge. Yeah, so this was a matter with serious consequences, as we've been alluding to, but it started with just a bunch of dudes bickering. They started with a disagreement among lawyer John M. Glover, Colonel James Broadhead, Colonel Alonzo Slayback, and John A. Cockrell. 
Broadhead was running for Congress in 1882, and the Post-Dispatch published a lot of criticism of him, just really a lot. His associates got drawn into the criticism and tried to defend him, and that included his friend and law partner, Colonel Alonzo Slayback. Slayback had fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War and had then become a schoolteacher and a lawyer after the war ended. On October 12, 1882, Slayback attended a meeting of Democratic voters of the 18th Ward of St. Louis. And at that meeting, he made a public statement that Pulitzer's paper needed to stop targeting Broadhead. In the October 13th edition of the Post-Dispatch, a letter from a man named John Glover was printed, and that was very insulting to Alonzo Slayback. This was not, it seems, at all about his behavior at the meeting, but about an exchange that the two men, Glover and Slayback, had during a court trial that they had both been involved in. The letter is framed in a way that makes it seem that Glover wanted to respond to the paper's account of what had happened during that exchange in the courtroom. And among other things, Glover had apparently been insulted by Slayback, called an impertinent young puppy, and he wanted to put his own version of the events that had taken place in print for everyone to see. But the paper did not only print Glover's note. It also printed this intro, quote, Mr. Alonzo W. Slayback, an individual whose chief claim to distinction rests upon the fact that he is the law partner of Colonel James O. Broadhead, rose in a meeting of Democratic ward politicians in this city last night and without personal provocation proceeded to apply a string of vile and virulent epithets to the Post-Dispatch and its conductors, making charges which he knew to be false. And then it sets up the situation that, oh, do you remember, this is the same Alonzo Slayback that got in a rather public argument with another lawyer, Glover, and then it prints the Glover letter to elaborate. So Glover wrote, quote, Now in simple justice to the colonel, it must be stated that he did not use the language quoted until I had told the court several times that I had no respect for him. And, as he correctly says, had induced him to discontinue a certain line of remarks by telling him I would slap his face at any time and place he might appoint except that courtroom. That he declined this invitation and pocketed those insults as he names these expressions of abstract truth, he will be able to prove, as he says, by everyone in the courtroom. And candor compels me to make the same admission. But when he says that the presence of the court and the ladies restrained his valor, perfect frankness requires me to say that, on the contrary, they account for it. In fact, so far from being a brave man, the colonel, notwithstanding his military title, is a coward. He dare not be brave except in a courtroom or a church, and he will beg or cringe out of any difficulty into which his vaporing humor may have gotten him. That's a cutting letter. It's a lot. <laughs> so Glover's note continues, and it continues to insult Slayback, including a reference to him, quote, once marshalling a female sewing society. So sexism aside, that was very insulting. Uh, and here's the thing. That piece that Glover wrote that they printed was from more than a year earlier. It was dated November 11th, 1881. So the paper had dredged it up and reprinted it, undoubtedly knowing that it was going to anger Slayback. And it did. 
This decision on the part of the paper was not out of nowhere. There was ongoing conflict that led to it. Slayback and the paper's managing editor, John A. Cockerell, had gotten into a lot of arguments over the preceding months. They ran into each other at events and social gatherings, and there was also an incident at the Elks Club in which Slayback had very vocally insulted Cockerell as a person and as an editor. Cockerell had demanded an apology that night and had gotten one, but when Slayback was making a speech in support of Broadhead's campaign a few days later, he accused Cockerell of blackmail. So much bickering. So that same evening that the paper printed Glover's letter, so remember that was October 13th, Slayback went to the offices of the Post-Dispatch. He had gone there with a friend, William H. Clopton, and according to Clopton, Slayback's intention was to slap the editor's face and then demand an apology and a retraction. But that is not what happened. Instead, Cockrell pulled out a revolver and shot Slayback in the heart at close range. When I got to this part of reading this the first time through, I went, whoa! That escalated quickly. (laughs) was not what I thought was going to happen, so... What exactly happened in this incident was relayed in two completely different ways by the eyewitnesses to the event. William H. Clopton said that as he followed his friend Slayback into the editor's office, he saw him taking off his coat, telling Cockerell to put his pistol down. But three employees of the Post-Dispatch who were there stated that they saw Slayback pull a gun first and that Cockerell fired in self-defense. There was a pistol produced, but it was not proven to have been in Slayback's hand. Yeah, there was no doubt that Cockrell had a pistol, but this other pistol Clopton had said didn't exist, and yet Cockrell's eyewitnesses were like, yes, we have it right here. Cockrell had initially left the scene, but friends convinced him to turn himself into the police, and he spent three days in jail, during which he was described as being very remorseful about how things had gone in the newspaper office. He was released on bail, and a grand jury examined the evidence available to determine if this case should go to trial. And Cockrell came out looking pretty good in that analysis. He had several witnesses to support the account that Slayback had threatened his life with a firearm, and Slayback had come to his office. Cockrell had not sought Slayback out. Eventually, three different grand juries ended up looking at this matter, and none of them determined that it should go to trial. Cockrell was a free man, although he was kind of reviled by most of St. Louis. And by extension, Joseph Pulitzer was also finding St. Louis to be a bit too hot for his personal liking. He was also having a number of health issues. His vision, which had always been a little poor, was really starting to fail, and his general health was not well. No doubt this was connected to his refusal to ease up on his work schedule at all. And even if there had been no public outcry against the paper and its part in the death of Alonzo Slayback was still a really stressful situation. So Pulitzer's doctor directed him to go on vacation. He and Kate planned to head to Europe in early 1883. But they first had to travel to New York to board the steamer that would take them across the Atlantic. And as it turned out, Joseph Pulitzer did not board that steamer. He took a meeting instead, and that meeting was with Jay Gould, who is today often characterized as a robber baron. 
Gould had made a fortune in the railroad industry and had turned that fortune into a lucrative financing business. Pulitzer and Gould discussed a New York newspaper that was, like other papers that Pulitzer had purchased, in a precarious state when it came to money. That was the New York World, a paper that Gould owned and was pretty eager to get rid of because it was not making him money. And so Pulitzer offered to buy it. So those doctors' orders to take a break really went out the window when Pulitzer bought the world. Pulitzer threw himself into his work once again, determined to turn this lagging paper into a success in the same way he had done in St. Louis. He moved John Cockerell to New York to serve as managing editor of the world, and this was something that a lot of people saw as rewarding a man who had shot somebody with an even more lucrative position, which does seem like a reasonable interpretation. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting how that particular detail gets relayed. Some people put it that way. They're like, oh, he got rewarded. And others are like, well, Pulitzer had to get him out of St. Louis because he wasn't safe there anymore because people were really, really angry about the whole thing. Uh, I suppose it's a matter of point of view. But coming up, we're going to dig into the relationship that Pulitzer is probably most famous for, not with his family or friends, but with rival William Randolph Hearst. But first, we will hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. The last two decades of the 19th century were a time when journalism changed really considerably. And a lot of that is due to decisions that Pulitzer made. 
the world suddenly became very politically slanted in favor of the Democratic Party. And it also started to publish a lot of features about Republican politicians caught in scandals. And this is also when sensationalism became just a huge part of selling papers. In 1887, Pulitzer started to publish the New York Evening World to supplement the news cycle. That same year, though, Pulitzer also stepped away from his hands-on involvement in the papers. Up to that point, he was involved in the day-to-day running and decisions of the world and the evening world. Even small decisions really came down to him. If you listen to our two-parter on Charles Chapin, it's right after the New York World Building was completed on Newspaper Row that Chapin made his way to New York and ended up working for Pulitzer's news organization. We mentioned in that story that Chapin ended up being very powerful at Pulitzer's papers, and it was because Joseph Pulitzer felt that he needed somebody else to handle business because of the issues that he was having with his vision and his general health. Yeah, later down the road in the timeline, there was a big reorg, and Chapin was one of the people that ended up with a lot of power. Uh, And in addition to health issues, Pulitzer, in a way, became the victim of his own success, or more accurately, of his competitors' attacks because of his success. He had grown the world to a staggering circulation of 600,000, and other publishers were just tired of losing readers to Pulitzer. The New York Sun's publisher, Charles Anderson Dana, had his own reporters dig up as much information on Pulitzer as they could, and then they combed through it for information that could be used in personal attacks against him. The main message that Dana ran was that Pulitzer had hidden his Jewishness, something that really did not go over well with the large Jewish readership of the world. Pulitzer, like a lot of Jewish businessmen at the time, had really downplayed his Jewish heritage. He and Kate belonged to an Episcopalian church where their children had been baptized, but that really didn't matter. In addition to alienating Jewish readers, Dana's efforts also played on growing anti-Semitic bias in New York, so it also alienated non-Jewish readers who were more aligned with that bigoted stance. And all of this took a further toll on Pulitzer's physical well-being, and he handed off even more of the paper's management. But even as he ceded the majority of daily decisions to trusted managing editors in 1890, make no mistake, Pulitzer was still involved at a high level, making sure that the policies that those managing editors based all of their decisions on were what he had wanted. A lot of journalism innovations that are credited to Pulitzer and to the New York world are the result of the competition between Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. In 1887, Hearst's father had let William take over the San Francisco Examiner. That was a paper that had really turned into a money pit. Hearst modeled its makeover on what Pulitzer had done with the New York world. He admired the world's success, but he did not admire Pulitzer, who he referred to with various anti-Semitic sentiments. In 1895, Hearst, with both the family money and the confidence that came with making the examiner successful, bought the New York Journal and immediately started trying to take market share from Pulitzer. We're going to talk a little bit more about that purchase on Friday because it involves Pulitzer's 
brother. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, there are some more fun aspects to the changes that Pulitzer made at the world that we'd really think of today as the ingredients that make up a well-rounded newspaper, although these were, as we said, tied to his ongoing competition with Hearst. This was a time when the New York papers introduced features like sports pages and illustrations and even fashion coverage. And another major component that Pulitzer helped to introduce was regular comic strips. We've referenced the Yellow Kid comic strip on the show before. This was really where that started. This character that came to be known as the Yellow Kid started out as an ensemble in a strip called Hogan's Alley. Hogan's Alley was intended as a portrait of the lives of the city's poor residents. The Yellow Kid was bald, suggesting that his head had been shaved to either treat or prevent lice, and he wore an oversized yellow nightshirt. His shirt was a canvas for the Yellow Kid's dialogue, which was usually a quippy commentary on the topic of the strip. This strip, created by Richard F. Outcult, became really popular, and the kid, whose name was actually Mickey Dugan, was the breakout character. Hogan's Alley had initially appeared in a weekly magazine called Truth in 1894, and then Pulitzer picked it up for the world in 1895. And Hogan's Alley was a Sunday comic, and it ran in color, and it was very popular. So popular that William Randolph Hearst hired Richard F. Outcult away from the world to draw the strip for the New York Journal. But the Yellow Kid and Hogan's Alley was not copyrighted. Outcult didn't own it. So Pulitzer just hired another artist, George Lux, to continue the Hogan's Alley strip in the world. Those two strips ran concurrently and often with very different tones. While both of them retained the tenement setting and the social commentary, Hearst's paper tended to be more extreme and sometimes even vulgar. There was a lot more violence. And all of that was reflected in the trajectory of the writing of the Hogan's Alley comic. But the real legacy of Mickey Dugan, the yellow kid, was that the term yellow journalism was coined because of his oversized yellow shirt. It was actually called yellow kid journalism before it got shortened. So yellow journalism came to mean the prioritization of circulation and numbers and income over journalistic integrity. You'll also see it described in different ways or defined in different ways of people like making just ridiculous claims or comparisons in their their journalism. And this all happened as Hearst and Pulitzer battled for readers of New York and both of their papers opted for outlandish and eye-grabbing headlines and writing instead of even-keel, well-researched news reporting. This competitive, sensationalized news approach of the world and journal in New York in the 1890s is often cited as, at worst, instigating the Spanish-American War and, at best, influencing it. There was just a lot of melodrama in the press about things that were happening in Cuba. Sometimes what was reported was fully fabricated, Then, when the USS Maine sank in Havana Harbor, Hearst's papers pointed to Spain as having been the likely attacker, running headlines that read, quote, destruction of the warship Maine was the work of an enemy. Naval officials think Maine was destroyed by a Spanish mine. This set off a huge wave of anti-Spanish sentiment in the U.S. that escalated tensions between the two countries until talks broke down, There was really no evidence that Spain had attacked when the journal ran that headline. 
A U.S. Navy inquiry determined that the main had been blown up by a mine, but didn't attribute intent or blame to anybody in the incident. In the court of public opinion, though, Spain became the villain. Yeah, there have even been uh, historical maritime researchers who even think it's possible that the main had a malfunction that caused that explosion. But as far as it was printed in the press, it was all Spain's doing. Pulitzer had become an absentee publisher, and we're going to talk more about this in the next episode. But he was perpetually sending urgent telegraphs to his editors about how they must handle things. And in the game of sensationalism, the world had really lost a significant amount of readers to Hearst. And this is when the incident that we mentioned in the Charles Chapin episode happened, where the world published an article based on a fake one that was purposely planted by Hearst. Uh, And then, of course, that incident was embarrassing, and Hearst pounced to capitalize on it and point out, they are literally copying us. They had no leads. Pulitzer reorged the institution and instructed his editors to become men of action and to do whatever was needed to right the ship and stop the behaviors and articles that were completely tanking the world's name. Pulitzer, always working remotely, made policies for the New York world that changed its tone considerably. So gone were the sensationalized yellow journalism-style articles, replaced by the investigative journalism exposing corruption that had been the hallmark of all of his papers before his battle with Hearst. So that's where we're going to end part one. In part two, we will get into Pulitzer's most high-profile legal battle and his more personal struggles. Do you also have listener mail? I do. I do. This is from uh, our listener, Aaron, and it's kind of a reminder to myself and a, uh, an example of how things fall through the cracks and a promise that I will get on top of it. Uh, Aaron writes, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I recently visited San Francisco for the first time and only had a day and a half in the city before returning home. During the short trip, I tried to see as much as possible, so I rode a cable car, I ate at some iconic restaurants, and I walked 12 miles up, down, and around the island. During my walk, I listened to a few episodes about San Francisco from Stuff You Missed in History class to learn more. You know, full tourist mode. I have an inquiry about something mentioned in San Francisco 1906, The Great Quake and Fire. Holly said she would be doing an episode on the graph trials. I haven't found that episode and wondered if these trials were still on your subject list for a future episode. I'd love to learn about what went down after the disaster. If you have covered it and I missed it, I apologize. I'm a new listener to Stuff You Missed in History class and haven't gotten caught up yet. I've loved everything I've heard and can't wait to learn more. You have a new fan and subscriber in me. Have a great day and happy holidays. Uh, This will come out after the holidays, but thanks, Aaron. I'm going to presume I had a happy holidays. Um... I haven't done that episode. It's one that I keep prowling around and I I haven't done it yet. So I'm hoping, because I'm kind of working through the holidays, that I will get on top of it and that in the new year, when this, when you hear this, that it will be well in process. <laughs> but that happens, right? Like things, yeah. every episode, I mean, not every episode, most episodes though, um, kind of spawn a little side marginal in the notebook of like, oh, this could also be an episode. This could also be an episode. This could also be an episode. And then sometimes I get to them and sometimes I don't. But that was a really good one. So thank you, Erin, for the reminder 
because I need to get on that. Uh, if you would like to write to us and remind me of stuff I said that I forgot about, that's cool. Uh, you can do that at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not subscribed to the podcast, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.